It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 244, The Rise of the Roman Republic. Before our story pushes west, Seleucus, the inheritor of the central and eastern part of Alexander's empire, decides to found a city around 300 BC. It was situated in a strategically important location. Resources were abundant, and it grew in importance as a gateway city. The city's name was Antioch. And it will go on to be just that, a gateway city. It will become a city where many Jews evacuated persecutions after the death of Stephen and the age of the church. The same communities will have a church that commissioned the disciples, Barnabas and Paul, who will bring the gospel to the Gentiles. In Antioch, the believers will receive a new name. It is here they will be called Christians for the first time, meaning little Christ. God is putting together all of his puzzle pieces to fulfill his greater purposes in the time of Jesus and the birth of the church soon after. Further west, while the descendants of Alexander continue to squabble over power, a nation is rising to tremendous power. And in this case, it's actually prophesied as well. In Daniel 2, the Roman Empire is described in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and even better in the interpretation. Daniel 2 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. The legs are considered the Romans, and the details and interpretation by Daniel make it interesting when you understand the history. And here is the interpretation, and um, as Daniel interprets it, this fourth kingdom will be actually the Romans. Daniel two thirty nine. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. And as the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. That sounds really confusing, but it's a really excellent description of the Romans. This kingdom of iron... This will represent the Roman army and its legions, but it will be a divided kingdom, part clay and part iron, some iron, some clay. The people will be a mixture and will remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Clay will represent the democratic, republican side and strong cultural side of the Romans. It seems to start as clay, and by the time of Julius Caesar and eventually Augustus, a transformation is completed by ambitious men to overthrow the republic While this occurs at this time, its republican roots are still present in many areas of the empire. 
And another thing about Daniel's interpretation is that the people will be a mixture will not remain united. It's extremely true, consider the instability of the empire. While on the flip side, there will be something absolutely unique and powerful about the birth and growth of the Roman state into a broader and powerful government covering the entire Italian peninsula and the eventual dominant force for generations. Yet Rome only started as a single city. And there's a ton of stories of their founding and past. And Brant Frost helped us before with some of the background of Rome getting, up, getting us up to this point. And as a republic, the state started to grow as the wealth and productive energies of its people started to set them apart. A population boom occurred due to the freedom given its citizens. A Latin war occurred in 338 BC where the Romans expanded outside of their borders. Their government was a republic with two annual consuls given power like our current president. And there's strange stories about this and where only one consul had supreme authority over an army one day while the other had it in the next. I mean, these Romans were terrified of having another king. One would attack, one consul would attack one day, but another one per would promote a defensive strategy the next day. Their internal controls and hatred for a king ran deep in their blood. And further, there was a strong cultural bond in the people to be something akin to the Enlightenment age in Europe and America in the time of the Revolution. In their age, this kind of so-called enlightenment to culture and values, they actually gave it a name. They called it Roman virtue. Heroes of character emerged that cared more about the state than their egos and their power. It's a fascinating culture, and after many, many military losses, but few campaign losses, Rome's army needed transformation. And the historians like to call them reforms. In a republic, you get innovations and technological improvements, and they come in a fury. Other improvements came. Aqueducts were built. The Roman roads were built for military purposes. The Appian Way would allow its troops to deploy with rapid mobility even through rough swamplands. And after three years, or three separate wars with the Samnites, a rough confederation of mountainous people south of Rome, we see the precursor to the future legions. Now the official reorganization will, will not truly come till later, we actually now see a change in the Roman military formations. We see an innovative flexibility that the Romans develop. And I keep reading all sorts of articles about the legions, and I'm just going to put it in my words here. Besides the official arms and armor of the legions, uh, which were a, you know, a spear, a shield, a large shield, a short Roman gladius, and iron armor, they were in essence an independent army of about a legion would be an independent army of about five to seven thousand troops. And and get the difference here. They were an independent force, which we didn't see in this. We we you know haven't seen in history like this to this age. The legions had subunits called cohorts, which could separate and reunite. I mean, think with me in World War II terms. If you see the overall maps, you see you know, the first corps and second corps, and they would converge on a city, or that Napoleon would do something similar. Genghis Khan had his horse cavalry to great effect. Here the Romans now have up to six, or later up to 15 independent legions or armies under a general or proconsul, or whoever leads them. 
See, Alexander fielded one army after Darius's one army. Babylonians or Assyrians would do the same. Maybe they had two. The, the Romans would place up to six legions in Germany at one point, four in England, two in Egypt. See the point? The flexibility was incredible. It shows their empowerment in a people and their generals. And when the time was right or the enemy great, they would unite under a consul for a great battle. And this flexibility would serve them well. And when they meet the Greeks in battle, that wonderfully powerful phalanx with, you know, 12 to 18 foot spears, well, the Romans had such organization, they would just surround them. They'd break, they'd peel off a cohort. They'd peel off this, um, this, you know, centurion would lead another unit around like Marines or something. And, And they were just staggering in their flexibility. The Romans also had an innate gift of tenacity, and they never gave up. Persistence. The Romans will probably lose more battles than any other empire in history. And they really will lose entire armies. Multiple armies and hundreds of thousands of men. Multiple fleets would be at the bottom of the ocean, and they'd just build another one. Thousands of ships, and they will still win wars. They are resilient. And at the end of the third Samnite War, the Latins, Samnites, and Gauls attack Rome. And at this stage, with their renewed military, Rome is able to fight on two fronts and still win the war due to their flexibility and their resources and their character. And after defeating the Samnites, their wealth grows, their strategy um, is, is the following. They, they, they approach cities and they basically say, submit to me. And you'll be part of our, our republic. You'll be part of our state. And we'll give you privileges that it grants. If you resist, everyone dies. This technically works in many cases with great favorable allies gained. At the same time, huge conflicts erupt with other states. Next, Rome, with this advanced government and military, ends up in a campaign for the rest of Magna Graecia or southern Italy. The Greek states on the coast end up with support from a Greek prince named Pyrrhus. He's a brilliant general and relative of Alexander the Great, and if Rome wins the campaign, all of central and southern Italy would be theirs. If they lose, they're destined for smaller things. Pyrrhus is a king of the far western portion of Greece. Well, news is coming out from all over about the rise of Rome, and the southern Italian city-states are crying out for help specifically a city named Toronto. Now, Toronto is on the southern coast of modern Italy. Now, Pyrrhus arrives in southern Italy with over 30,000 soldiers to systematically bring freedom back to the states, which started to fall one at a time to the Romans. And many of them peacefully just became Roman with favorable status, while others resisted joining Pyrrhus's side. Some distance from Toronto at Heraclea, Pyrrhus outnumbered the Romans, but he found he was being overwhelmed. A great engagement and followed. His phalanx, those dudes with the crazy long spears, were just being surrounded by the Romans who would just peel cohorts off to surround them. Their military structure was superior to the Greeks. It was the unveiling of Pyrrhus's elephants which turned the day, and the Romans who had never seen the creatures didn't know what to do with the beast. And I thought it was pretty interesting that uh, Pyrrhus actually kept his elephants in reserve. 
and he pulled him out at the end as almost like a secret weapon, and he pulled off the victory. He was a great strategist. The battle, though a victory, was too costly for Pyrrhus. He didn't have the reserves to sustain the fight. He just won. And he supposedly said, another such victory over the Romans, and we are undone. And this is where we get the language of Pyrrhic victory. Pyrrhus would go on to free other states, and he would march to Rome and find a new army raised by the Romans marching after him. And he, so, so Pyrrhus takes all of southern Italy, and he marches to Rome after winning his victory, and he gets a call for help from other city-states. And this time, a city-state in Sicily wants his help. Sicily at this time was the lure of many nations due to its great wealth. Well, it had scores of city-states and resources, and the Carthaginians were on the island. Rome wasn't yet. The Carthaginians basically were the dominant trade force of the Mediterranean at the time, and they hired scores of mercenaries to expand their trade empire. And when I think of the Carthaginians, I think of the trade oligarchy kind of, of like future Venice at its height. It's a very, very wealthy trade empire run by extremely wealthy families. Well, Pyrrhus leaves the Italian peninsula for greater spoils in Sicily and gets wrapped up in a war with the Carthaginians. So he defeats the Romans, but he really doesn't. He kind of holds them off, and then he's lured by greater spoils in Sicily, and he goes to Sicily. Well, Pyrrhus loses a fleet and thousands of soldiers, and then he eventually gives up his fight with the Carthaginians, and then he returns to Toronto. And when he leaves, he leaves a foreshadowing note uh, as he leaves the, the area of Sicily. And he says, what a wrestling ground we are leaving, my friends, for the Carthaginians and the Romans. Pyrrhus engages with the Romans um, as they come after him in southern Italy. And, and he engages with the renewed Roman force at Beneventium. And the battle was inconclusive enough for him to realize he wasn't going to get anywhere with the Romans. He leaves the Italian peninsula for good. And years later, Toronto will surrender effectively, giving Rome undisputed control of Italy. So let's finish this episode with a historic parallel. Pyrrhus fought two major battles at Heraclea and Beneventium, but it started when he moved his troops and landed them in Toronto. Now, it, uh, the Italian um, historical term of the city was her Teratium. Now, it's, now it, the city is actually called Toronto. It was at Toronto the legions proved to be far more effective force than the phalanx. The military prowess just shifted from Greece to Rome. The power of Rome would eventually dominate Greek proper, and a shift occurred near this city, and another shift will occur later. Military advancements just shifted the power base of the earth. In time, the Romans would subdue the Greeks in their entirety. Another military awakening will happen in Toronto if we fast-forward our story to World War II, 1940. The British and Italian navies are raging a contest for the Mediterranean, and their armies were challenging each other in North Africa. Mussolini, the Italian fascist leader, placed six battleships and nine heavy cruisers in Toronto and measured to inflict serious damage on the English. If you ever find pictures of these battleships, these Italian ones, they were like the Ferraris of their day. They were beautiful. The English were terrified of them, and they had plans to neutralize their extremely modern battle fleet. A very small aircraft carrier named Illustrious 
launched 21 antiquated swordfish biplanes, and nearly half of them carried torpedoes. The biplanes attacked and devastated the Italian fleet. The net effect of the attack was the English losses were two planes shot down. The Italian losses were one battleship sunk, two heavily damaged, three other vessels damaged. Sixty Italians were killed and six hundred wounded. Enough damage occurred literally and psychologically that the Italian battle fleet had little impact on the rest of the war. The British claimed and kept naval superiority in the Mediterranean throughout the war after this attack. It all began with this assault, but what happened militarily changed the face of warfare. With this single act, the battleship, the most powerful naval weapon or potentially of its age, became secondary to the aircraft and its carrier. Guess who studied this attack with relentless detail? The Japanese. If the British could do it in the Mediterranean, why couldn't they do it at Pearl Harbor? For some reason, the Americans didn't get the hint, and we had our worst military tragedy to date on December 7, 1941. And it's amazing how Toronto, or near it, served as a place of significant battles in world history where military history took a drastic turn. First, the phalanx was outdated, and later the battleship was outdated in the same location. It's interesting considering our timing as military innovation in the news recently has taken a turn as well. Terrorists have attacked a Saudi oil facility with drones and hampered a portion of the world's oil supply. Drones aren't a new thing. The American military deployed them in the war in terror in the Iraqi wars, but now terrorists have figured out how to use them similar to missiles. It's the fact that they're incredibly cheap and affordable. You can buy a drone today with live video capability today with little training and have it over the horizon for little money. It's the weaponizing of a cheap flight system that brings terror and change to military thinking. We're faced with military innovation again today. The Romans innovated and defeated the Greeks. The British innovated and defeated the Italians, the descendants of the Romans. The first were the innovation of flexibility and mobility, the second a technological innovation of aircraft. Today we're faced with the threat of both of these, inexpensive, very mobile aircraft. To the kings of the earth, what will you do? Will you innovate, like the Romans or the British? Will you be creative? Will you rebound? Will you take the innovation to the enemy? I love what Israel has done. When faced with the danger of rockets on their borders, they created the Iron Dome. The videos on YouTube are crazy with streams of rocket trails in the air and explosions knocking out missiles. When faced with greater threats from long-range missiles, they've created a long-range version to knock out these missiles. Its name is beautiful. It's called David Sling. You've got to love innovation with a throwback name to the hero that kills giants. Okay, so I just totally nerded out way too much on history in this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Because the Punic Wars are about to break out. And then the Ptolemies and Seleucids are going to fight over Israel and we get a type and shadow of the Antichrist and an uprising and rebellion which is celebrated even today at Hanukkah. So I'm going to end this episode with a prayer. Um, yeah. So God, we can study and learn strategy, but it's you that 
is our stronghold. It's your presence that protects us most of all. God, bind the plans of the mad scientists and innovators for hell and release your protection over your people. With the craziness of society and lawlessness and shootings and terrorist activities, you are our fortress. As you stated in Psalm 91, you will cover us in the shadow of your wings. You will protect us. We pray this protection over your people. Give us wisdom and let us be your servants and grow in peace no matter what abounds in this world. And let us grow in the knowledge of you and fulfill the purposes you have for us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.